Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 20, Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. So if you are willing and able, please stand for the reading of God's word. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Uh, Managing one's own image is of utmost importance for people in power and authority. They want to make sure that they display uh, the the image of their own choosing, that people would see them in the right light. For example, President Franklin D. Roosevelt didn't want the press to ever photograph him in a wheelchair, even though he had to be in one, so that he could retain an image of strength. Queen Elizabeth I, in her old age, actually had partial baldness, facial scars, and she was losing her teeth. But she refused to authorize any portrait of her or any painting of her that wasn't youthful and beautiful. People of authority guard their rule through careful image management. But God's approach to image management is very different. Not like earthly rulers. Whereas earthly rulers want to mask or maybe guard their power, God rejects any images at all. This is what we see as we return in our exposition through Exodus this morning, as we come to the second of the Ten Commandments. Now, it's been several weeks since we've been in Exodus So by way of reminder, chapter 20 is where Israel is at the foot of Mount Sinai receiving the law from God. How they are to be as his people, the family rules, so to speak. We've already seen God display his power and his strength in the ten plagues in Egypt. And now he's going to tell of his character and have his people reflect his character in the Ten Commandments. Now, these ten rules really reveal something about the rule maker. They are, they are in, a, in one sense, attributes of the Almighty. And last time in Exodus, we encountered the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. This is a call for undivided allegiance. God is saying, I will not share my worship. I will not share my praise with another because I am 
the one true God. And now comes the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Now, if we read that passage on its own, verses 4 through 6, we would think, oh, I get it. We're not to have any other false gods. We're not to worship any false idols. You know, I, some of you are here this morning and you're just, I'm at a Christian church. I worship Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's orthodox. I, I don't have any statues of Hindu gods at my home. I'm not like those priests of Baal that were circling around those altars in the days of Elijah. Uh, I, I'm, not like the apostle, uh, I'm not like those uh, philosophers in Athens that built an, uh, 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 an altar to an unknown god like the days of Paul and worship that. No, when it comes to the second commandment, I'm here at church, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Orthodox, I'm okay, easy peasy, lemon squeezy, right? I got it covered. But in the context of the first commandment, but in the context of the first commandment, that's not what the second commandment is talking about. Whereas the first commandment deals with whom we worship, the second commandment deals with how we worship. The first commandment says, you must worship the true God. And the second commandment says, you must worship the true God truly. So really, the second commandment prohibits self-willed worship. Worshiping God as we choose rather than as he dictates. Uh, We might think that as long as we have the right intentions, as long as we're sincere, it doesn't really matter so much how we worship God. But friends, according to the Bible, it does matter because you can be sincerely wrong and God cares how he is worshiped. So this morning, I want to provide two reasons images are to be avoided. And we'll conclude with a couple of applications at the end. First reason images are to be avoided. Images obscure the glory of God. Images obscure the glory of God. Now, as we look at verse 4, we need to be clear about what it does not say. This is not a verse that outlaws art or sculpting or painting. It isn't wrong to have different kinds of ornamentation or coloration or beauty in your home or in your life. It isn't wrong to have a certain aesthetic sense. You know, we don't have to just have in the church four walls that are just white and, uh, you know, unordained or or unornamented. Later in Exodus, we'll see that God commands the Israelites to actually do pieces of artwork. Uh, In the tabernacle, in his worship, there are going to be pomegranates and golden bells. There are going to be pictures of palm trees. Uh, There's going to be a a lamp that's going to be sculpted like a tree. In fact, on the mercy seat that symbolizes God's covenant with his people, there's supposed to be winged cherubim there. So this passage isn't an anti-art passage. What it is against is that God is not to be visually represented. 
it is against infusing any object with spiritual efficacy, as if those images will bring us closer to God, or as an aid to worship, or establish a closer communion with God. So it's one thing to look up at the starry night, or to admire art in a museum, and to give praise to God, and to admire God's handiwork of the stars, or to to thank God for the creativity that God gives to mankind to make things beautiful. But it's another to think that those objects or artifacts necessarily represent God or establish some spiritual efficacy with the divine. In fact, this is what happens to Israel in Exodus 32. Turn with me there, just a couple chapters down, to Exodus 32. I don't know if you've ever noticed this about the, the incident with the golden calf. Exodus 32 In verse 4, Aaron makes this golden calf as an image of God, the God who brought them out of Egypt. And then he says, look at what he says in verse 5. He says, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Capital, all caps, L-O-R-D, to Yahweh to the Lord. In other words, Aaron isn't saying, children of Israel, you know, God has gotten us through this far. That's awesome. But we're abandoning him now. Moses is on the mountain. We don't know what's going on. We don't know where he is. So let's switch to another brand of God. That's not what's happening here. No, the golden calf used because it is a picture of strength and vitality was the image Aaron used to aid the worship of the one true God. They were worshiping the true God in a false manner. They wanted a God that they could shrink down to size, that they could see, and that they could touch, come alongside in their worship. Here, then, is the problem of images. It's dishonoring to God. It obscures His glory. Here at Redeemer, we believe in the God of the Bible. God is sovereign. He is almighty. He is independent. He is impassable. He is infinite. He is the absolute creator and Lord. He is transcendent. He cannot be squeezed into some kind of representation, some image reduced to an object. That's why Calvin writes, a true image of God is not found in all the world. And hence, his glory is defiled and his truth corrupted by the lie whenever he he is set before our eyes in a visible form. Therefore, to devise any image of God is itself impious because by this corruption, his majesty is adulterated and he is figured to be other than he is. Calvin is basically saying images about God lie about God. Their lies. I recently learned about this new social media app called Be Real. And from what I understand, it's a reaction to another app called Instagram. I, I, know, I, mean, I know everyone knows Instagram. Now, the idea is that Instagram pictures aren't real enough. 
They're not authentic. They're just curated pictures with all the right lighting, capturing all the best food moments that you have or the best yourself. But Be Real is an app where every day at a different time, everyone is notified simultaneously to capture and share a moment in two minutes, no matter where they are, messy hair, don't care, right? That's the idea of Be Real. It provides an authentic picture. But beloved, God doesn't have a Be Real or Instagram problem because no picture can contain him. Pictures are not real or authentic enough. They cannot hope to capture the splendor of God because an idol makes, think about this, the infinite God finite. The uncreated God created. The invisible God visible. The spiritual God material. The all-present God local. The seeing, hearing, and speaking God now blind, deaf, and mute. In short, it makes him the exact opposite of what he actually is. Now think about how something like a crucifix with Jesus on it, with the Christ on it, obscures the glory of Jesus. It hides the fact of his deity. It masks his victory on the cross. Yes, it displays his human weakness, but conceals his divine strength. Yes, it depicts the reality of his pain, but it keeps out of our sight the reality of his joy and his power. So if we don't have any visual images, what are we left with? Turn with me to another passage. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Look at, let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Moses is going to spell out why the second commandment is so important in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Just a couple books down after Exodus. This is an important passage. Deuteronomy 4, 15. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form... On the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of fire, beware, lest you corruptly by making a carved image, by making a carved image for yourselves. You see, God did not reveal himself in a physical form. How does he reveal himself? He speaks. The way God revealed himself is not through visible images, but through his word. It's not our own conception of God or our own imaginations or our own representations. It's God's Word, the Scriptures, the Bible, that is to be our source and idea of God. God does not want us to look so much as He wants us to listen. Not the visual, but the verbal. Because we walk not by sight, but by what? Say it with me. We walk by faith. We're living in a visual age... We walk around with image makers in our pockets, those phones we have. So we might think more visual, more drama, more dance. These things will make true worship of God possible. But actually, it obscures God's word. Thomas Watson writes, God is to be adored in the heart, not painted to the eye. The Apostle Paul writes, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word 
of Christ. So we ought to make no apologies in a worship service for being centered on words and the Word, that we have a liturgy of listening. That's how God designed it, because that, has, that is how God has chosen and chooses to reveal Himself. Images are to be avoided because it obscures the glory of God. Second, images are to be avoided because it incurs the jealousy of God. Images incur the jealousy of God. Do you see that in verse 5? You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So if you turn back to Exodus 20, verse 5, that's what it says. We don't often hear a lot of good things about jealousy. Typically, it's associated with a negative emotion. Uh, There's an appropriate place, however, for a divine jealousy. Because divine jealousy is not juvenile or insecure or insane. It's not kind of like that human way of jealousy that we often think about. Rather, it's a holy jealousy, an intensely caring devotion for the objects of his love, like, like a wife for her children or, or like a husband for his wife. No image is going to be as good as God. In God's eyes, they cannot be anything but alternative objects of worship, giving to others what is due only to him. And God doesn't remain indifferent. He's jealous because he loves us. His jealousy is roused and he will not share his glory with another. And so God gives this stiff warning in, verses, in, in, the, in the following verses. He says, I visit the iniquity of the fathers of the children to the third and the fourth generation. And you're reading that and you're wondering, what is going on here? Now, this is not saying that God is the kind of God who's in the business of generational curses. Uh, Nor does it mean that God makes children and grandchildren pay for the sins of their fathers and grandchildren. Uh, There might be some lasting consequences that come from your father or your grandfather, but you you do not pay for their sins. Deuteronomy and Ezekiel are clear on this. Deuteronomy says, children shall not be put to death because of their father's sin. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Ezekiel says, when the son has done what is just and right, and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father. The righteous of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So Moses and Ezekiel are very clear. God does not say to a righteous child, Tough, nookie, tough nuggies to you. You got a bad dad, so now you will have a bad life. That's not what God is saying. No, this is a warning talking about judgment on those who continue to walk in the ways of their fathers and grandfathers. Notice carefully what it says. God will visit the iniquity of the fathers of the children, third and fourth generation, of those who hate me. And so we shouldn't understand that this passage to mean that there's a generational curse. What it's really saying is you're responsible. You cannot excuse your disobedience by pointing to your upbringing or your culture or personal history, as significant as those may be. But if you choose, if you choose to continue in sin as your fathers did, that previous generation, you will share the exact same punishment. 
So whether you're a child or you're an adult, know this, your parents did not and cannot create your future. Parents like to think that they can create your future, but they can't. They are not God. Children are not locked in either by the obedience of their parents to a blessed life or the disobedience of the parents to a cursed life or punished life. But at the same time, this, pa- this passage does seem to imply that parents give their children a, tra- a trajectory. Parents give their children a direction. And this is how this warning functions. We're meant to tremble at the prospect that playing fast and loose with who God is, making adjust- adjustments to the biblical presentation of God to mold God as if God is plastic to any which way we want Him to be, that doing that is dangerous not only for our own souls, but also dangerous for following generations. God is a jealous God, and He's warning us, perhaps particularly to parents, asking us, what inheritance are you going to leave behind for your children and your grandchildren? Will it be an inheritance of all your idols, all the images that you've taken up? Will they pursue the same things? Or will you leave behind, will they see you broken and repenting and clinging to Jesus, honoring him according to his word and echoing a fervent love and jealousy of God? And look at that promise in verse 6. God says, showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me. A couple generations to those who hate me. Thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, this isn't a math formula. Like, if you live obediently, you're going to have thousands of generations after you. No, of holiness. No, that's not what it means. What the contrast is meant to show is that mercy triumphs over judgment. God's mercy is an infinite degree, and his wrath upon the children of the fathers of those who hate him can be overcome by divine mercy. And God loves to show his mercy. God is more eager to be gracious than to punish. He is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. So no matter what parents you have or what family you come from, there's hope no matter what. All right. Images obscure the glory of God. Images incur the jealousy of God. How do we apply this? That's usually the question we have when it comes to the Ten Commandments. It's not usually, what's it saying? It's usually, why is it saying that? That's our question. And also, how do we apply it? Well, I have a couple of thoughts about applying the Second Commandment. Number one, worship without images. Worship without images. We must guard against images of God, whether imagined or external. Now, guard against images of God imagined, meaning I don't think it's wrong for us to have mental images of a shepherd when Jesus says, I'm like a shepherd. I don't think it's wrong for us to have images of a father running when we think about God being like a father to a prodigal. 
but we ought not to make images of the invisible God, even if they are in our imagination. And we must guard against images of God externally. Externally. So let's take, for example, something like the Sistine Chapel. Now, I love Michelangelo and I love his artwork. I really do. But the chapel is full of images that break the second commandment. I remember visiting the, the Sistine Chapel with Shirley. Uh, we, 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 took a, we took a trip out to, to Italy. And as we walk in, the guards say, Silencio, silencio, like be quiet. Why? It's a place of worship. It's a chapel. And I think that is the embodiment of transgressing the second commandment because God is not some ripped white European male with a scraggly beard. That's not who God is. And I believe that the commandment also rules out the use of pictures and statues of Jesus. For centuries, the second commandment has been set aside because of the incarnation of the Son of God. The argument is made that God became visible to us in Jesus. And this not only allows the use of images, but demands the use of images for worship. Yet, however well-intentioned, I think the idea is wrong. History suggests that it is dangerously wrong whether we risk associating our, whenever we risk associating our worship too closely with anything he has made. You know, it's interesting to me that the Bible never provides an earthly description of Jesus, of what Jesus looks like. In addition, there is no record of the earliest Christians ever making images of Jesus. Dig all you want in the ancient Near East. There are no images of him. What they did have were books about him and what he did. In fact, the first image of Jesus is found in the catacombs of Rome. It's a stick figure of a person on a cross with a donkey's head. And below it, it's graffiti. It's inscribed, Alexemenos worships his God. Because there's a picture of somebody at the bottom of that cross. It's mocking Christians. It was in derision that we have the oldest extant picture of Jesus. You see, the incarnation of Jesus was not merely about Jesus' physical appearance, which is all an image of him can ever show. Which is why the disciples were not told, draw, sculpt, sketch. The disciples left no pictures of Jesus and instead were told what? Preach the word. So what about things like the Jesus film or television shows like The Chosen? I might be touching on a sore subject here. Now, you might say, I'm not worshiping when I watch those things. It just helps me to focus my thoughts on Jesus. It helps me to better worship and understand God. Now, I simply want to pose some questions for you about those films and those TV shows. And the best question I can ask you is this. Why are you watching it? Does the show give you something? that the word cannot. 
remember, we grow not by seeing visual depictions of Jesus, not by, but by seeing Jesus through the eyes of our heart. We hang our lives not on a vision, but the promises of God. If you walk away from the show and say, I never thought of Jesus like that, or now I understand what the Bible says, that can be an evidence of God's grace. Or it might be a dangerous delusion. Are we undermining the sufficiency of God's word? Scriptures are able to do what even the world's most talented artists cannot do, which is portray Jesus as he truly is. Now, some of you might ask, okay, you're telling me I need to throw away my children's Bibles and my nativity set that I still have out because it hasn't blown away in the storm. Let me read to you what J.I. Packer writes. Historically, Christians have differed as to whether the second commandment forbids the use of pictures of Jesus for purposes of teaching and instruction in Sunday school classes, for instance. And the question is not an easy one to settle. But there is no room for doubting that the commandment obliges us to dissociate our worship, both in public and in private, from all pictures and statues of Christ. The argument here is that some in images are not intended to draw our hearts and minds to worship. And perhaps for the sake of educating young children, those who can't read yet, then maybe that flannel graph, those pictures are great. So I'm kind of, I know I'm waffling here, but I'm sympathetic to the argument that it would seem strange, maybe theologically misleading to have a book about Jesus that doesn't show his face but only appears in shadows and silhouettes. So children's storybook Bibles that make it a point to artistically stylize Jesus and not say this is what Jesus really looks like might be okay. I love my children's Bibles. And I'm still wrestling through this issue. So don't throw them away just yet. But I think the point is clear. We are not in the age of the eye, but in the age of the ear. This is a time when faith comes from hearing the message of the promise that came down from Abraham to Moses to Paul to every Christian here in this room. You were saved not from a painting, but from preaching. Jesus came not painting, but preaching. Second point of application, perhaps more important. Worship by the book. Worship by the book. Considering the, consider the wisdom of worshiping God the way he wants to be worshiped. Now, this is what uh, reformers or, or, or Christians have called the regulative principle. And it's based off this second commandment. Briefly, the regulative principle states that everything we do in a corporate worship, uh, in our corporate worship gathering, must be clearly warranted by Scripture. This could be an explicit biblical command or good and necessary implication of a biblical text. So David Peterson puts it this way, the worship of the living and true God is essentially an engagement with him on the terms that he proposes and in the way he alone makes possible. This means that we gather explicitly for corporate worship, which we are doing right now, 
rather than saying, hmm, I wonder what would be really cool to do in service today. Uh, or to say, well, Scripture doesn't forbid the pastor coming in on a zip line, so maybe he should come in on a zip line. Have you seen those videos? Or let's do some interpretive dance. Instead, it says, let's worship God in ways we know are pleasing to Him, with elements we know He prescribes for us. This is why at Redeemer, we, our motto is we sing the Word. And that we pray the Word, and we read the Word, and we preach the Word, and let's see the Word and the ordinances that God has prescribed for us in the baptism and the Lord's Supper. And I think this principle is not restrictive, but it's freeing. Because in leading corporate worship, the elders of the church are in some sense binding the congregation, the conscience of the congregation, to participate in each part of the service. And so we work very hard to ask you not to sing or pray or participate in something that would violate your conscience. It must have scriptural warrant because scripture alone is worthy to bind the conscience and is our final rule for faith and practice. This frees us as a church, frees us from cultural captivity. It frees us from weekly novelties. It frees us from man-made ideas and preferences. The regulative principle says we don't have to guess at what pleases God. Last application, and we'll wrap up. Keeping the second commandment means we worship without images, worship by the book. And third, I think, I certainly see that it means we worship Christ. As we wrap up here this morning, uh, whether you're a Christian or not, you might get the sense that the Bible is anti-image. Now, let me disabuse you of that notion. Our desire for the visible is not wrong. It's good. It's very good. You see, when God created the world, he made men and women in his image. One of the reasons we don't create images of God is because God has already created them. You and I, whether you're here this morning as a Christian or, or, or not a Christian, we're all made in the image of God. All of us are meant to be in a relationship with God and with one another. All of us are meant to reflect God and His glory. We are not allowed to make God's image, but only to be God's image. But our ability to do this was badly damaged by our fall into sin. The image of God in us has been defaced like a broken mirror. In our fallen and sinful condition, we are no longer able to reflect God's image to the world as we ought to reflect it. But God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to repair his image in us. Jesus is the true image. He is, Colossians says, the image of the invisible God and the exact imprint of his nature, as it says in Hebrews. This is why Jesus could say, anyone who has seen him has seen the Father. He, Jesus Christ, is the point of contact. And in order to come to God in true worship, you don't need to clean up your image. You don't need some kind of idol. No, what you need is to come to God through Jesus Christ. 
And when we come to Jesus, when we turn to Jesus as our Lord and our Savior, the Spirit indwells us, the Holy Spirit, and He comes alongside us in our worship. And it is then, as Jen Wilkins says, we whittle away at what does not reflect God, and we rechisel what has been obscured. So if you're not a Christian this morning, will you be who God has made you to be? And even Christian, will you be who God has made you to be? A reflection of God, bearers of his image. If you do, the promise is for all of us that when Christ returns, you will see him face to face. That is a good desire for us. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word this morning. And the depth of your word and the power of your word to create new life in us, to shape and mold and fashion us, And Father, we ask, our greatest desire is that we would worship you and that you would be well pleased. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.